Hi, Rolo. Good to have you on the podcast. Hey. <laughs> so for everybody who doesn't know you, who doesn't know what you do, um, please tell us a bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, first off, I am Rolo Tomasi. I am the author of the Rational Male series of books. Um, I have three of them. Uh, the first one is actually probably the most significant, I think. It's uh, what everybody refers to as the Red Pill Bible or the Bible of the Manosphere, Bible of Game. Um, it is – that that book has has changed my life and changed a lot of other people's lives, and I I presume that's most likely why you're calling me here in the first place. So I'll just say that um, a lot of what I used to do back in the day, uh, which was um, I was a moderator for a, uh, a, a forum called SoSwav. And this was like we're talking about like the early 2000s when when I started with that, and a lot of the a lot of my quote unquote career as an author uh, came from conversations and collecting really doing I was doing research at the time, but I didn't realize I was doing research because really all I was doing was just sort of getting into these conversations with guys on a on a forum. And, you know, we never had anything like that before. Uh, we never had like seduction communities. We never had any of this kind of stuff right up until like after the late 90s and then into the early 2000s. And so it was a uh, sort of a consortium of guys coming together and sharing their experiences. Um, originally, it was pickup artists coming together and um, and you know, comparing notes basically, and saying, you know, here's what works here, here's what, works. and it was from all over the world, and it was really kind of an interesting thing, considering that it was like men from all over the world using these techniques, and I, I, you know, by that time I was already married, but I was fascinated by this because I have always been sort of a student of psychology, and uh, I have two degrees. I have a, a degree in uh, a bachelor of fine arts, and I have a, a BS in behavioral psychology, and so. Um, I never really did anything with behavioral psychology. It was actually something that I, I took because I wanted to understand my clients a little bit better because I was always into marketing and branding and things like that. I was a art director for a lot of gaming properties, and I've always worked in uh, – my, my area of expertise has always been sort of – art, really, graphic design, art. Um, I, and I've done pretty much everything from video to audio to you name it, and I've probably done it. Um, wore, I've, I've wore a lot of hats um, since I started my career back in like the early 90s. So, um, so it was sort of a natural fit, but I wanted to understand my clients a little bit better because I was always having to deal with these guys. And so that, that sort of instilled in me this, this want to know how things work with like people with, with, you know, the human, I won't say human mind cause I'm not a neurologist or anything like that, but it's just like psychology. And so really I was only taking that to sort of better my career at the time, but then that sort of led me into, um, trying to pick apart why it was that these pickup artist techniques were working and why some did and why some didn't. And this is back when evolutionary psychology was sort of in its infancy and at least the in the in the sense that we know it now, I mean, evolutionary psychology really started kind of back in the 70s, but it hasn't really gained popularity until the mid, you know, early 2000s, um, and then you know, of course, where we're at today. But um, so that really kind of fascinated me, and I got into it, and so I was trying to help these guys out because I've been through a lot of really bad relationships up until I got married, and and um, and I always wanted to sort of figure out why why things were the way they were 
And so I was helping some guys out. And then in 2003, my uh, brother-in-law ended up uh, committing suicide. And he committed suicide because, uh, really, because his my my sister-in-law was leaving him for a much richer man. And I I really that that sort of people ask me, well, what was your your red pill moment, or what was it that that uh, that really woke you up? And I think that was probably it. And that's when I knew I wanted to to do something a little bit more than just you know talk with guys on a on a uh, forum. And so we were I, I wanted to help dudes. I wanted people. I wanted guys to. Um, to be able to sort of see the signs and to change their minds about things. And that was, that, that woke me up to a lot of the stuff that's in the first book. Uh, and, uh, so pretty much the first book is a collection of all of the most common, uh, conversations that we had in SoSwap from back in the day, because what happened was later on, people told me I needed to start a blog. So in 2011, I started, uh, the rational mail and then, um, that I, I want to say that legitimized me a little bit more, but it, it did because it sort of put me on the map as far as one of the thought leaders in the red pill with respect to intersexual dynamics. And so there was three R's in the manosphere. There was Rolo, Roosh, and Roycey. And, um, and really kind of still those we're, – we're really the three people that um, that people look to when they're talking about intersexual dynamics with respect to the red pill. And that then led into me – um, taking the best of that work and rewriting it and putting it into uh, a book form because I had so many people saying, you know, this would be life-saving material if you just had it in a book. Because I, I if you read the intro to the first book, I had a, a, a reader named Jackie, and she told me that she says, you know, my my son really needs this stuff, but he's never going to read this blog. Because it's just some Yahoo on the internet, and you know that you don't have any legitimacy if you're just some blogger on the internet. But if you have a book for whatever reason, you have this physical book that's sitting in your hand, that makes it real for them. And so I said, okay, fine. It, you know, at the very least, let me just write one book. We'll put this thing together, and we'll see what happens with it. And so I put it out there, and it just exploded in popularity. And it's pretty much the go-to book for anybody who is either in seduction community, uh, red pill community with respect to intersexual dynamics. Um, I mean, there's, uh, I, I, I feel pretty confident saying that it's, it's become the red pill bible at this point um it's been it's going it'll be six years in october and um, i've written two other books since then um i've written uh it's kind of like a series now it's like the rational male and then i've got the rational male preventive medicine and then i've got the rational male positive masculinity and that came out almost two years ago um in july so that's me <laughs> awesome. So before we talk about your books, let's talk a little bit about like dating or relationships in general. So um, mm -hmm. what are your values when it comes down to dating, relationships and this whole dynamic? So uh, just speak to that, please. Uh, well, when I am talking uh, either on my podcasts or I am writing in the book, I have always taken a very clinical approach to this. So I try and I understand that it's, it's impossible to have an entirely objective perspective on uh, particularly stuff like this, but on anything in general. Uh, but I try my best to be as objective as possible. Um, I had a lot of guys asking me if I was into objectivism or if I was like, uh, in some way, uh, familiar with Ayn Rand or whatever. And I, I'm, 
I honestly, I didn't even know what objectivism was until people kept saying, you're very objectivist. And I'm like, okay. Uh, and so I guess that's where I'm at with, with respect to my values. I always try to, um, to separate the mechanics of intersexual dynamics from morality, from, um, from what's right and what's wrong. My, my goal, if I have a goal, or my commission, I guess, is to, to analyze this stuff and pick it apart and put it back together again. I've never been satisfied with, uh, with just having the TV come on when I press the button. You know, I want to tear the TV apart and I want to you know, tear it all into its all its parts and put it all back together again. And really, that's what I'm doing. And, and I think that lately in the manosphere, which is the sort of the community that we we all are a part of, um, I think a lot of it is leaning more towards moralism and more towards, uh, you know, what how can we how can we make all this information work for our ideological bent? And that's never been what I've been about. Um, it's not, I'm not saying that that's not important. And in fact, my my fourth upcoming book um, this year is going to explore issues of the red pill and religion. But again, I'm doing this from a very clinical, very let's stand off and, and look at the mechanics of this rather than let's invest ourselves in what's right and what's wrong. Uh, I'm not saying that that's not important. I'm just saying that's not my approach. My approach is to give you the nuts and bolts. You know, how does this thing work? And then what you do with that is really kind of up to you. Um, so I'm I'm not big on prescriptions. I don't I don't give guys like 12 rules for life or anything like that. <laughs> I I just say here's a, a I I, God, I wish I knew who t- who said this, but they had a really good analogy for it. Is like the red pill and the the rational male is the Chilton manual of uh, intersexual dynamics, which is I don't know if you're familiar with the Chilton manuals here in the United States, but what it is it's a manual for pretty much every car that ever existed. And all it is is just here's here's all the parts that you use to put together everything in this car, and here's how you know here's the common maintenance kind of things and 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 it's for pretty much every car you could imagine, um, but I I really kind of feel like it's the tool book. It's like here's the here's the handbook kind of thing, and then what you do with that is up to you. So um, I'll just leave you with this: is that I'm never been I've never been uh, I'm not in the business of making men better men. I'm in the business of giving men the tools they need to make themselves better men because I'm not so full of myself as to think that I have like a one size fits all approach to everything. Like you're, you're in another country, you're from a, you you know, a different background or, you know, ethnicity, whatever. Uh, My experience is not your experience, but I can show you the tools or certain universal tools and universal dynamics that exist between men and women that have existed since, you know, a hundred thousand years ago when we were in hunter gatherer tribes that are still relevant today. We just don't want to, we just want to, we want to layer on all kinds of, meaning and 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 uh values on top of all this kind of stuff and you know what that's unavoidable but that's not what i'm about i'm about making sure people have the tools and they understand this stuff and they apply them in a way that benefits their life so basically um you're not about like giving prescriptions to anyone you're not no. saying do this don't do that it's not about no. morality. i have um the, the close no, the closest I come to that is I have nine, the nine iron rules of Tomasi, which are in the in the first book, and even those I never. That's the only place you will find all of those together is in the book, uh, because I I um, deliberately separated those because I want people to 
understand those as kind of like suggestions or more about like here's this is a this is such a common occurrence that it needs to be universally understood. So you can choose to ignore them if you want, but it's sort of like the 48 laws of power. There are certain things that you can um, you can embrace and use or there's stuff that you can you can sort of just say, no, that's not for me. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, and so you need to understand and know about those things. So as close as I get to maybe a prescription, real, let's just no, let's not call it a prescription. Let's call it a suggestion. <laughs> um, is uh, the Nine Iron Rules of Tomasi? Got it. So um, let's talk about like your first book, The Rational Mayor, because I think a lot of new listeners uh, are currently listening to this episode who aren't familiar with your work and aren't familiar with the whole Webpill and Manosphere community. So um, yeah, just just talk a little bit about like the key concepts of your book. I think um, a few topics of the book include like positive masculinity, um, plate theory, and and stuff like that. So just sure. read this, yeah, please. Sure. Uh, let's, uh, let's start with what everybody accuses me of, of harping on the most, and that's hypergamy. Uh, hypergamy is uh, women's sexual strategy. It, it is not just a woman's tendency to marry up. It is, uh, I think it deserves a much broader um, definition. And so that's what we in the Manosphere have been really kind of working on, I think, or at least popularizing the idea that it's not just this sociological idea anymore. It's more of an evolutionary psychology side of things. Uh, I have a uh, I've got a really great video that I did for the 21 convention back in uh, 2017, and it is a uh, expose, I guess, on uh, it's, it's, it was called um Hypergamy micro to macro, and I go from all of the biological implications of hypergamy and ovulatory shift and all this other stuff, and then how that goes from an individual woman to uh, a couple to a family to uh, a community to a, a body of politics. So uh, it's 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 from the micro to the macro, and really what that is is it's a, a, a Hypergamy to me is women's sexual strategy in that women are always looking for the best or a, at least a balance of the best um, that they can find in a man when it comes to uh, when it comes to his physique, when it comes to his genetics, when it comes to his you know raw sexual arousal, and then balanced with the best provider, the best provisioner, the best you know cads versus dads basically. Uh, that's that's really what hypergamy is. So if you if you even go Google the term hypergamy, you'll find my my blog is in like the, the I think it's within the top four uh, returns on that word. So uh, that would be that would be number one. Um, I also am a in the first in the first chapters of the book um, I mention or I, I break down the what I, what I call the soulmate myth, and the soulmate myth is uh, what what pickup artist called one-itis. It's this sort of unhealthy fixation on one woman to the point where they will do pretty much anything, including kill themselves for that particular woman. Um, that's the soulmate myth. And the reason I put that as the first chapter in the book is because I think that that is probably the most dangerous belief that, uh, that men hold today. Um, when we talk about the red pill, um, the red pill really came, of course, from the Matrix movies, but um, it it was sort of an emancipation from this conditioning that men and women actually get um, from the time that they're very young to um, to their you know young adulthood and to their you know much older adulthood, and they're fed a series of of basically lies um, that 
give them uh, plays on their idealism, plays on their on their natures to um, make them into useful tools for a particular narrative or a particular agenda. And that's where you get the idea of of the red pill versus a blue pill. Um, blue pill. I've all, whenever I refer to the blue pill, I always say blue pill conditioning because that's what it is. It's a behavioral conditioning from the time you're five years old to you know the time you're into your adulthood, um, unless you can unplug. And then that's why they, that's why we always call it red pill and blue pill. Well, part of that blue pill conditioning is always what's called the soulmate myth that there's one person out there for everybody, and it's based in this socially enforced monogamy. Uh, this, this idea that um, there's only one person for one person, and it is uh, rooted in romantic love. It's, remo- uh, it's rooted in this idea of um, courtly love or uh, bastardized chivalry. Um, uh, that, I think, is also a very important part of the book. Um, plate theory is also uh, non, non-exclusivity. And plate theory is interesting because I hear guys use the term plates all the time now. And what, they're, what they mean is, is they have a, a roster of girls that they are romantically involved in. And they are pretty much creating their own kind of soft harem. But they're doing it above board. And they are... Um, I, I, the reason I say the reason I talk about um, plate theory in the terms of uh, non-exclusivity is because I think that it is the key to avoiding things like the soulmate myth. So that if you have if it, it it conditions guys to think in terms of what's best for themselves, and um, and then gives them the experience with many women non-exclusively dating like an adult rather than like a serial monogamist to decide what it is that they want that's best for their lives because most guys get into relationships based on very uh, idealistic romanticized um, understandings between men and women and then later on they commit to a lifetime of dealing with women and they that commitment was based on very naive, very juvenile, very um, Pollyanna, Disney, uh, you know, understandings. And then later on, and then, you know, by the time they get to be about 30, 35, they realize that they had much more potential than they could have had had they not believed in that prior. So that's another reason for plate theory is to, uh, or let's just call it um, non-exclusivity, dating non-exclusively. Um, having many options so that you can pick from the best one that you have. And I'm saying that that's all you ever do. Some guys think that that when I say that, it just means that oh, just go out and have sex with as many guys or with many girls as you possibly can. That's not what it means. Um, if you have sex with your plates, okay, fine. There's guys, you know, obviously we want to have sex, but uh, it's it's more about understanding and having a, having an experience of many women so that you understand female nature. So that's another part. The other uh, another aspect of the book that is is I think. Probably the number one aspect of the book is uh, understanding yourself from the perspective of mental point of origin. And mental point of origin is not just, oh, think of yourself or be selfish or whatever, you know, think of yourself more. It's not about that. What it is is it's actual, like a, a root level understanding of putting yourself as your first thought when you're making a decision about something. And it's not just uh, you know build yourself up and be the best you can be. It's not this rah rah power of positive thinking crap. It is about it is about um, literally conditioning yourself and understanding that you should be the one that 
you think about whenever a, an important decision comes along or whenever you're going to decide something for yourself. It's you're not thinking about womankind because what I see going on ever since the sexual revolution has been this social engineering to teach uh, young men and boys um, to think to put womankind before themselves in their mental processes. So when something comes up or when they're, they're deciding to do something or pretty much anything, the first thought that comes into their brains is how is this going to affect mommy? How is this going to affect my girlfriend? How is this going to affect my wife? How is this going to affect the women around me who might be listening to this? How is this going – it, basically it's a prioritization of um, what I call the feminine imperative above all else, and I think that – Boys are conditioned for this. Like I, I always say, you know, boys are conditioned to be. Uh, they're they're taught as if they are defective girls right now. That we're we're taught in a female, we're taught in a female correct way. So any any way that a woman is, whether she emotes a certain way or however um, however the feminine is prioritized, is always the correct way to to interpret things. And that's what we're taught right now. And this, I don't think people really understand this because. That wasn't the way things were prior to the sexual revolution, prior to what I call the fempowerment narrative, meaning that everything has to revolve around supporting women and building women up and pushing it to, at the expense and even the overall extinction of masculinity and men. Men come second. That basically is what, what it is. Um, and I would say that I also talk about the feminine imperative quite a bit, which I just was was mentioning. Uh, feminine imperative is not just feminism. Um, it is when I talk about the feminine imperative, it is whatever benefits womankind. Whatever is and that could be. Uh, we're talking about abortion right now. We're talking about uh, you know that's that's hot in at least in this country about legalized abortion. And so when I talk about that, I always I always try to remain like again as as objective as I can. But what that is is a prioritization of the feminine imperative. Whatever benefits womankind is the feminine imperative. So yeah, is fem feminism is definitely a part of that. It's definitely a political arm of that. But just our social interactions that we have are part of the feminine imperative. Women in the workplace, part of the feminine imperative. Um, chivalry, also part of the feminine imperative. So whatever it is that is the global understanding that makes women correct or it makes women the first thing that you think of that is a feminine imperative so those are some key elements of the book i think and and basically um society reinforces this whole thing of like woman first like um it goes back to this whole saying like woman and children first right mm -hmm. like uh one one of the saying that goes like 100 years back then and also this whole thing about like soulmates like the whole like hollywood industry it's about like having the one finding the right. one and it's own all, because it's all because it's all romanticized <laughs> well because we we have we've we've made romantic love into kind of a god 
kind of a deity for us. And so everything has to revolve. You don't have a perfect marriage unless you have romantic love in the marriage. And I don't think people really understand that marriage used to be prioritized on whatever it was that the the man's needs were. Um, marriage used to be a contract that ensured that a man was going to be parentally invested in a woman and that that woman was also going to bear his children. And that was the trade-off right there. Um, if if romantic love came from about that, that was all all the better. But that's not what it used to be about. And I don't think that people really realize how the attitudes towards marriage have changed historically through through the years. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think right now we've we've taken romantic love and we've we've lifted it up uh, to be something. That is only beneficial to the woman right now. It's like if every all the burden of romance is always on the man. It's never on the woman. And this cre creates this whole like unhealthy dynamic of people having like um, one-itis or uh, thinking um, they sh must have their girlfriend back and all this all healthy thinking, right? Right. Well, what what happens is this: is it's the soulmate myth. And I began the first book. Um, with the soulmate myth, because that is the single most dangerous uh, misbelief, I think, that people or that men get in their blue pill conditioning. Because what happens is we're taught from a very early age that there's only one person for one person. And there's, there's this mythological soul that was created by God that you will find sometime in your life, and that's the one person you're supposed to be with. And you should do everything imaginable for that one person. You're basically setting yourself up for this codependent relationship, right? But what it does is it keeps men disempowered to make those choices because everything's out of his hands. He just has to explore the world and find his soulmate. And then once he finds that person, it will be this perfect ideal, idealized love for him because men tend to see love in idealistic perspectives. Women look at love in opportunistic perspectives. And we can talk about that here in a minute. But what happens is guys get to a point where they believe that they can't live without her. That's part of, of songs and poems and everything ever since yeah. courtly love and romance. I can't live without her. And it's gotten to the point right now that if the man is, is forced to live without her, is forced to tear himself away from or she ditches him or whatever, she's, he gets into a divorce with his soulmate and he, can't, he feels like he can't live without her, he literally cannot live without her. And they end up killing themselves because of that. I would say that one of the primary reasons for male suicide being four times higher than than uh, than women right now is because they invest themselves in a life that was this idealized goal state for them that they maybe have achieved or maybe never achieved, but maybe they achieved it and then they had it all torn away from them later. It's what I call getting zeroed out. They, they, they build themselves up and they believe they have some sort of relational equity in the relationship. And then when that woman says, nope, I'm out or I'm taking all this away, that's when you see guys kill themselves or kill themselves and their wives or kill themselves and their wives and their children because they are zeroed out because they have that belief in that soulmate myth And that's why I say that that's the most dangerous aspect of, of the blue pill is this belief that you can only have one person. Now, the other, thing, the other important thing to remember about this is that the soulmate myth is based in, in socially enforced monogamy. So what, it's, what that myth does is it reinforces the idea that there should only be one person with one person. 
And so you get these guys who will resist me when I say, you know, you, you need to learn how, how to spin more plates, right? Or you need to, to learn to date non-exclusively. And it's like, it's like an alien thought to them. They don't understand it because it would never enter into their thought process because they've been trained from the time they were a little boy to believe that you should only ever be with one person and that that person has got to be your one and only, you know, destined to be your soulmate from the gods or whatever. And so what happens is these guys get, you know, really wrapped up in that and it it causes a lot of bad decisions for them. So they they they'll you know, change their lives or change their religions or change their jobs or move to a different country or um, go to a different school so they can facilitate a relationship with their one, you know, the one. We hear that all the time. Anytime, I, anytime I'm reading that in an article, every time I read that in an article, particularly from women who – women, I shouldn't say it's just this is just unique to men. It's been more reinforced in men, but the reason it has been is because – there is this social idea, socialized idea, and it's across across cultures too. I should say it's not just Western culture. This is a this is in pretty much every culture. In Germany that, also, yeah. Every culture that has some form of socialized, um, in, socially enforced monogamy, um, has a, a a soulmate belief of some kind, where it's only one person for one person, and. There's a whole. I mean, how much time you got? Because there's a whole um, <laughs> complex. There's a whole. There's a whole complex mechanism behind all of that, that is necessary to promote the idea that monogamy is the only way to 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 be to to to. And it's the only legitimate way of of having a relationship, and that's why there's the soulmate myth. Um, I, Rolo, I really love your unique insights and um, let's talk a little bit about like opportunistic love and, and you mm -hmm. wanted to talk a little bit about this whole dynamic. Um, uh, yeah, just to share your thoughts. With okay. Us. Um, I, I should, probably should have added that when you were asking me about what are some of the key elements of the first book because that's actually a really big key. Um, it's another thing that a lot of people struggle with is when I talk about um, the concept of love uh, it's it's my understanding and my belief that men and women approach love from differing concepts and that that difference between the two of them, what motivates a man to love and what motivates a woman to love are two different things. But we're taught by Disney and the, you know, the, the feminine primary, yeah, the, by, just by the, you know, general society that we are, we supposedly share a mutual concept of love, but we don't. Um, men tend to look at love from an idealistic perspective. Um, if you're familiar with Dr. S uh, Steven Pinker, um, he's done a lot of research on gender differences. And one of those gender differences is that men tend to be more interested in things and women tend to be more interested in people. And there's evolutionary reasons why that is. But for men, it is this – men are, men are deductive problem solvers. So we want to see something or we want to know what's possible in the world. That's why I say we, we approach it from an idealistic perspective. We see – you know the world outside, and we wonder, hey, can I put a bridge there? Can I build a building there? Can I do this there? <laughs> we want to affect our will on our environment. I'm not saying that. Um, I'm not saying that women don't do that as well, but this is men's natural proclivity: is a want to to 
put their will and force their will on their environment and do something. And so that requires a lot of idealism. Like what? Wow, I got an idea. Let's go do this, guys. Let's go get together and cooperate and put something together. Okay. Women, on the other hand, are motivated by opportunism. And I know that that sounds really bad, but that's the best way I can describe this. Because people, when I say opportunistic, it has negative connotations. So try to not think of this in a negative connotation. But understand that when I say opportunism and women are motivated by opportunism for love, it is because they are hypergamous. Is because they are looking for the best that they can get, and why wouldn't they, right? They're looking for the best, uh, the best genetic potential, and they're looking for the best provisioning potential. And so, what happens is women have this filtering system, the psychological filtering system, to figure out which guy is the best for breeding, which guy is the best for uh, parental investments, cads versus dads. And at some point, a guy has to check off a few of those prerequisites that a woman has in order for her to allow herself to love that guy. So she has that that guy for that guy to get to the state where she falls in love with him and she has an emotional investment in a man, that guy has to jump through those hoops in some way. This is what I call the burden of performance for men. Burden of performance doesn't just apply to women, it applies to a lot of different things, but in this case, the burden of performance is that guy has to perform in some way or he has to prove himself in some way a a superior quality to her own sexual market value for him to be worthy of her to fall in love with that guy. So there has to be so she she filters her 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 desire or she filters her um, emotional investment in a man through the opportunism of hypergamy. So that's why I say women tend to look at love in opportunistic perspectives and men look at it in idealistic perspectives. And of course the joke is this is that men are um, idealists pretending to be realists and women are realists pretending to be romantic idealists. Okay. So what happens is, so people always say this and they misconstrue this. So what I, what I say is that, um, that women fundamentally lack the capacity to love a man in the way that a man thinks that she should be able to love him. Because men see women as idealistic, just like them. They don't because they're fed this from a very early age. They're fed the idea that I want some, I want a woman who's going to love me as much as I love her, right? Well, his approach when he talks about love, he's got his own personal idea or definition or concept of what love is. And he believes that she should be c- capable of loving him in that idealized way. But what I'm saying is that because there are differing concepts of love between the sexes, and this is where you get a lot of conflict between the sexes, is because that guy is expecting her to to be one way, to love him in one way, and she's in she her concept of love is based on you've got to do X, Y, and Z for me to invest myself in you, and so that might seem like very very mercenary, but women aren't going to allow themselves to fall in love with a man who is beneath them in personal value and sexual market value and all kinds of other values while he believes that love should matter for the sake of love 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 is love for the sake of love is the only real love for men but that's not how women approach that so when you get two people together and they both understand that then you can have a lasting marriage and you can have a lasting love i'm not saying that love is impossible between men and women obviously it is um but that when you see those long-term relationships where you have a couple that have been together for 
20 or 30 years, you will, and they're still in love with each other and they still like each other and they still have a very good relationship. It is because they've come to terms with like the woman comes to terms with, okay, this is how he loves. And the man comes to terms with, okay, this is how she loves. And so I understand that I have a burden performance. She understands that she has to, in some way, seem idealistic or seem like she's loving him for the sake of loving him and then they come together and then that makes for a good healthy loving relationship between two people that have differing concepts of love so it's not like uh, everybody misquotes me on this and they and the reason they do is because they like the nihilism they like to believe oh women can't love men and it's no it's not the reason that men think that is because they don't think a woman can ever love them legitimately the way that they want to be loved, which is idealistically. So if a woman so – the only real love, the only legitimate love for guys who have, who have this opinion of women, the only legitimate love is that idealized love. And if she doesn't come over and she doesn't like fall in line with exactly the way that he believes love should be, then that's not real love. And the same thing happens on, on women's side too. So a, a guy who never measures up in his burden of performance, women are disgusted with that guy because he's never going to measure up to what she could love were he to do something like that. And so it's not that I'm saying that women can't love men or men can't love women. It's that we have differing concepts of love and we have to accept that before we can actually come together as a couple. I've always said that men and women are complements to each other. We're not, we shouldn't be adversarial to each other. We're very adversarial right now. And our sexual strategies are certainly antagonistic to each other. But, um, but it's not to say that you can't have a long loving relationship. People have been doing it for hundreds, thousands of years. Okay. So obviously it's a possibility, but what I'm saying is that it is, a, there, there are differing concepts of love and maybe some of that is also conditioned because we have decided that romantic love should be above everything else in, in life than anything else. So maybe men, because they believe that, because they've been fed this soulmate myth and all of this this ridiculous romanticism from the time they're five years old from t Disney and whatever, they're, they're sold this idea that that's the way love has to be, and then they realize that a woman can't love them in that way. Well, yeah, then they have a really bad reaction to that. They have a very nihilistic reaction to that, and maybe they just decide, you know, the juice ain't worth the squeeze. So. Really, really unique insights, Rolo. Uh, I'm so grateful for having you today on the podcast. So the six big things from the book here, the, the six big takeaways are like the soulmate myth, there is no soulmate, um, hypergamy, um, the mental point of origin, plate theory, uh, feminine imper uh, imper imperative. imperative, okay, got it, and the concept of love. Th these are like the six big things from the book, right? Yeah, there's others. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I would say I would, big that's, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty good summation, I think, yeah. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about your book, like preventive medicine. Like um, you also talked there about the, the, the hierarchies of love. So could you please speak to that and, and please also speak a little bit about the book? Sure. Uh, the, the second book, uh, when I wrote the first book, I thought that that was going to be the only book I would ever write. And so people, kind of, I, I really need to go and um, edit that book and I really need to go back and do a revised uh, edition of the rational, the first rational male book. And I'm going to do that because there's a lot of typos in it and there's a lot of um, 
it, it, it's got very small type. People always complain about that. And the, you have to understand that when I did that, I thought that that would be the only book I ever would publish. And so I wanted to cram as much good stuff into it as I possibly could. Yeah, I could probably have taken that book and turned it into like two books and it would have been just as effective. But anyways, uh, when I put out that book and everybody thought it was fantastic, the first thing anybody ever said is, where were you when I was 18 years old? Where were you? How come I didn't have all of this information when I, before I got married? How come I did? Gosh, I wish I would have known all about this stuff before my, you know, before I decided to have kids with, you know, my wife, whatever. And and so I I got that, and I go, you know, I I got to write something for these guys. And so <laughs> what I did is I I I sketched out a timeline of what what men could expect or predict to experience with women at different phases of a woman's maturity. So I made a timeline and the timeline was uh, about 15 years old for, for guys who were in high school, you know, um, to about 50 years old for women. So a 15 year old girl all the way to a 50 year old woman. And what it is that women prioritize in men and what men can expect from women at different times of their lives so if a guy was say if a guy was in high school you know he can go look at the section between like say 15 and 18 or 15 and 20 maybe and then when a guy's in college or whatever um, maybe he he looks at women who are between the ages of say 20 and 27 and then I have another area that I call the epiphany phase for women which is where women want to cash out of the sexual marketplace and settle <laughs> down after their party years which are party years are between like 20 and 27 years old uh, epiphany phase I peg right at about 29 to 31 years old and I also this is another one of my more, more controversial uh, pro, you know prospects here is is um, uh, that women's sexual market value peak is right around 23 years old 21 22 23 somewhere in there is where women will have the most agency uh, afforded to them based on their sexual market value and their sexual appeal for men that happens right around 30. 35, 36, somewhere in there because that's when men are hitting their strides because it takes longer for a man to mature into the things, the prerequisites that a woman has to make him maximally uh, attractive and arousing to her at that point because it takes longer for men to become men. Like, you know, the joke is men don't become men until they're 30, right? Um, that is – that, that is something that is, I think, on a, a hindbrain, limbic level in women that they know that it takes men longer to mature. So anyways, uh, so the, then you've got that, the epiphany phase where women have to sort of they, – they acknowledge that they can't compete at the same level that they did when they were in their 20s. And now they better cash out of the, out of the sexual marketplace before the party closes <laughs> and, and settle down and have kids. And, and it's true because what, what, what is the, – the average age of marriage, first marriage today is 28 years old. So right around there is right when women start thinking about that and the real epiphany phase kicks in about 29 to 31 years old. Uh, and then after that, there's the, the ages of what I call security and then maybe there's alpha reinterest. And what I did is in that timeline, I just sort of um, outlined what it is, the things that women prioritize in men during those times and what they can expect from women during those particular phases of her maturity. So a girl who's 15 to say 18 years old, she's got a maturity level that's not going to be, you know, not going to be as, as, as developed as say some, a woman who's like 20 to 25 years old. So you've got, you have to understand that there's varying phases of maturity for women. And 
at those phases is there are women prioritize um, certain aspects of men differently than they had in previous phases. So when a, when a girl said between 15 and say 20 years old, she's only considering the guy, how cute the guy is or how, what his haircut looks like or how well built the guy is, or if he's the captain of the football team, that kind of stuff where she's looking for that <laughs> physical aspect for breeding purposes, really. And I'm not saying that that doesn't, that, that pretty much sticks with women all the way through their lives, but that's their priority. Uh, you know, a, a 16, 17 year old kid doesn't matter how much money the guy, the kid makes. He just has to be cute at that time because you're still in high school. Nobody, you, you can't have, you know, it takes longer for men to establish themselves and to mature into their full potential. How much potential does a 16, 17 year old guy have? Not much, right? So, um, so when a, when a girl sees this. She's more interested in what the guy looks like in his physique. So there's this sort of alpha sexual arousal priority for girls. Then when a girl gets to be, say, 20, 25, 26 years old, she's prioritizing things a little bit different. Now he's got to have at least some sort of personality to him, but he still has to – the number one thing is he still has to be hot. He still has to be cute. He still has to – you know. but there might be some other aspects of him that, that balance that out that might you know, offset a deficit. So if the guy has – you know for whatever reason has some sort of money, maybe that's a factor, but it's not as big a deal because women understand that when they get into their twenties or early twenties, that that is going to be their prime, you know, sexual market value peak for them. So they want to use that time wisely. And the way that they do that is they look for guys who are pretty much physical alphas who have, you know, a, uh, a personality that is alpha that have uh, a, a physique that is, you know, uh, uh, certainly above their own, let's just say above their own sexual market value. Um, and they, so that's what they're prioritizing, but it's not to say that they're not prioritizing other things. Now, when a woman gets to her epiphany phase, she's prioritizing things differently. So she might say, look, I got to cash out of the sexual marketplace here and I got to find a guy for the long term. And none of those hot guys that I was having sex with in the foam cannon party on spring break in Cancun are going to commit to me. But there's this great guy here who's the you know he was a sweet guy that I used to know back in high school and look he's uh, gonna make partner in his a law firm here and so they're, they're starting <laughs> to prioritize things more for the I don't know if I can say this but I, the the beta buck side of things like the guy who has the better provisioning potential as opposed to the alpha fuck side of thing which is the guy that is hot that she wants to have exciting fun sex with so she's got to start prioritizing things a little bit different. She still wants to get the guy who's very hot and, and fun, but but those guys are not as forthcoming as they were when she was in her sexual market value peak. So she has to prioritize things differently if she wants to have a future and she wants to have children and she wants to have a family in the future. And so she's got to find the guy who is in some way reliable, in some way um, uh, you know, a, a good bet for parental investment is, is what it is. And so there's that aspect. And then, of course, what happens is later on, women get bored of those guys because they're not as fun, as exciting as the guys that they had back in college when she was so crazy back in college. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm giving you just sort of the rough breakdown of the timeline here. So when women are, are getting married and they find out the guy is very d dutiful and loving and is committed and probably still has believes that she's his soulmate. Uh, or, or yeah, she, yeah. And, um, and so then that's when you get divorce porn, which is the eat, pray, love narrative. So women say, Oh, you know, it'd be so much better if I could, you know, I'm almost 40. I'm still hot. I can still get a better guy. 
So I'm going to divorce this guy, detonate my family, and I'm going to see if I can go play cougar for a few years. And then maybe I'll find somebody else or find something different. And this is, this is, I'm not saying that this is like this plan that they have from the beginning. Like this is some sinister calculated thing. It's just the most common path at least in Western societies anyways, it's the most common path you're going to see women is. So what they do is they dump the guy. Um, they do eat, pray, love and get their groove back on. They, they have sex with a few guys who are, you know, there's always horny guys. Okay. I mean, you cougar, there was a reason that they have a cougar stereotype. And then after that, they want to look for a guy for the long term once again. And so the cycle sort of repeats itself, but at each stage of that timeline, there are different prioritizations that women have of men. And so basically what I did is I just gave them – I was giving men this idea of what they can expect from women at each one of those phases and to, uh, again, giving them the tools to use to make good, informed decisions for themselves when they are dealing with women at these various stages of maturity. Part of that is I talk about um, the hierarchies of love, and this is actually the red pill version of a very old concept. Um, when I talk about the hierarchies of love, I talk about how our social order has reprioritized women to be the uh, on the top of the scale. So it used to be this, and in a natural order, it was women, or excuse me, it was men, uh, husband, wife, children puppy dogs, right? Whatever, you know, anything down the line. So the, that was the prioritization. So uh, the woman loved the man, children love the, love the mom, the mom love, love, loves the, uh, that's a hierarchy of love, loves the man, right? And then for some, you know, the man, man loves God. Okay. You want to add some value to this? There we go. Um, that's the, that's the historic thing. So that's the way that we, I, for lack of a better term, that's the dominance hierarchy within intersexual dynamics. Right now, what we've done is we've re we've we've reprioritized that. We've put the woman as the primary. We put the man in the middle, and then we put the children. Or sometimes we even invert the whole damn thing. We put man at the end, children in the middle, and we put the woman at the front. And people will say, "Well, don't we prioritize children first? Yes, we do. We, we that's that's the cover story. That's what I call the cult of the child. The cult of the child is this: is we have to do everything for the best interests of the child, and those best interests are always in the worst interests of what the man has to do because we, we expect 100% responsibility for the man and 0% authority right now. It used to be the opposite way around. We used to expect responsibility from him as well, but we afforded him a, a authority along with that responsibility. Now it's just responsibility and 100% authority for women because we are doing this in doing whatever it is that we do. We do it for the best interests of the child and it you know men's Men have to be responsible for that, and they have no control and no power over that. So whatever works out for the child also happens to work out for the woman because we see, we tend to think of uh, child rearing as a female thing, that, that women can be both uh, masculine and feminine when it comes to raising children. Like they don't need no man. Men are just superfluous to all of that until something goes wrong, until that child becomes a, a criminal, until that 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 kid has done something wrong, and then the first thing out of our mouths is, "Where's the father? What do we? Where where is where's the father in all of this? You know, he should be stepping up." The, here's the thing: father's busy paying the bills, and and has no authority in any of this, anyways, because from the from the sexual revolution on to where we are right now, we have completely disempowered and disenfranchised fathers from the family unit, and that's by design, I should say too. So, um, 
but we we tend to think of things in terms of we want to we want to lift the children up the, the whatever's in the best interest of the children. Well, what happens is women use children as sort of their ideological human shields. So whatever benefits her is what should benefit the kids. So we make sure that women are provided for. We make sure that women can, if women want to be sex, want to be single parents right now, that that's become a right. If women want to abort their children right now, that's a right for them to do that. Whatever is in the best interest of the woman is what's really what's really going on. But we say it's in the best interest of the children. So we've we've done. That's why I say we prioritize women first, then we prioritize children, and now we prioritize men in that love hierarchy. So. Men are always looking up to the woman because, again, they've been taught that Pollyanna soulmate myth, that idealistic love, that it should be possible. And so it's only possible if he just keeps qualifying himself and keeps proving himself and takes on all the responsibility, gives her all the authority, lifts her up, makes her this this deify. You know, we, we, we talk about this. You know, you're supposed to uh, – uh, remove the remove the girlfriend from the pedestal. Put yourself on the pedestal, kind of thing. Well, what I say is that we need to remove womankind from the pedestal. That you need to make yourself your own mental point of origin, and that's that's the way that it has to be. And if that means you have to go your own way as a man, then that's what you do. If it if it means that you get into a relationship with a woman, that means that your decisions are what's driving the family unit your where you decide to go is is and she follows and that's just the way it is and she has to be she has to be taught that women have to learn that because it doesn't naturally come to them they want that they want authority and they want power and the first thing they do with that power is they ensure hypergamy is what they do so uh, that's why i talk about um the differences in in where men fit because men used to be at the top of that hierarchy and now women are at the top of that hierarchy, and men are really regulated to the to the position of a child. Most guys, when they get into a relationship with women, they they cede all authority and all power to that woman because, first of all, they're they're completely disempowered by the state in in a marriage. They have no real. They they know that if they were to say divorce their wives, they're going to lose half of their stuff, um, and they know that the children are not ever really theirs because most likely the state is going to award custody to the woman because it's what's in the best interest of the children, right? To be with the mom. And you're going to pay child support. And we, what we've done is we've, we've altered marriage. It used to be raising children has gone from a marriage-based model where two, pe- two people come together and they, they agree to live together and be a, a married man and wife and they bring up the children as such and the man models masculine behaviors, women must model the feminine behaviors. And we used to go we, – we, we used to have a child-rearing model that was based on marriage and now we have shifted over to a model that is based on child support. So it's no a, a man is no longer a necessary thing. He's superfluous. It's nice to have around, but he's not entirely necessary. And, and the reason for that is because women can do it themselves. And if you don't believe me, you can just look at the uh, rate of the um, the rate of birth in the United States right now. Forty two percent of births are born out of wedlock today in the United States. So and we're we're getting I, I don't know what the most recent stats are, but it was 42 or 43 percent the last time I looked. And we afford women the luxury of having children as if it were a right. 
So if a woman wants to go down to a sperm bank and do artificial insemination, she can go do that. We, we, make, we, we make up special dispensations just so that woman can go and do those things. If she wants to abort her child, if she, doesn't, if she says, this guy wasn't the right hypergamous choice for me, I want to go and uh, abort his child because uh, I don't want to be saddled with his biological responsibilities, she can go and do that. Uh, we, we make hypergamy the highest law in the land in Western societies. Now, there's other cultures that push back against that. If you look at like Islamic culture, they would definitely push it, push back against that. But they're also a polygamous, uh, a polygamous uh, culture. So there, that and that, that gets into a lot of. I, I can talk about polyandry and and uh, and paternity and things like that as well. But um, as far as um, I forgot where I was going with this now. As far as uh, going with uh, going with what what the hierarchy of of love is is we have shifted things because we've moved to a child support basis. So men become nothing more than children. We've already made them ridiculous. We want to make them like Homer Simpson. We want to make them like you know Doctor. There there are these men that are just sort of like these bumbling idiots that need mommy's correction because she's a woman. She has this unique ability to correct him and save him from himself. And that's part of that reorganization of the hierarchy between mom, children, and even the children are smarter than dad is in most sitcoms. <laughs> and so he becomes, he's relegated to the, to the position of being a child, but he's also got the unique responsibility of having to support all of the authority that she has and all of the, even the authority that the children have over him because the children have authority over him as well because we want to do whatever is in the best interest of the child. Well, how can we do with that? Well, you've got to step up to the plate, man, and man up and, and pay for everything and, and, and be the supportive guy and support all of the decisions with 0% authority in that relationship. So that's what I talk about. Roto, you're sharing like so many golden nuggets today and, and dropping so much knowledge. <laughs> it's, it's amazing, for, especially the timeline. Um, mm -hmm. I, I saw like thousands of parallels in my own life, and I completely agree with this. Um, so I know we, we won't do justice of your third book because we are running out of time, but could you please share with us like... Uh, Like lastly, like um, share with us like the the key concept of your last book. Like at the end, I always ask like five personal questions, but um, yeah, just share with us like the key concepts. Like I know one of them is like positive masculinity, but just uh, share with us like what you feel is the most important things. Okay. Uh, the first part you gotta understand why I wrote this book as well. Uh, I wrote this book because I was getting a lot of feedback from guys at uh, I, by this time uh, this was like 2015 um, the book yeah the book came out and I released the book in 2017 but about about 2015 I was doing some live appearances and I had guys who would show up at these live appearances and they were fathers and they would say I, I, I love your book it's changed my life it's saved my life I want to give this to my kids so or my boys so that they won't make the same mistakes that I made That, that's what inspired the second book as well, but it's also um, what inspired me to write a series of posts um, on, um, on being a red pill parent and what you can expect as a red pill parent. And this is where we kind of get into um, sort of a new understanding of patriarchy and a positive idea of patriarchy. Um, 
and I know that that's a dirty word to a lot of feminists, but uh, patriarchy is not a bad thing. And uh, yeah, if you read the book, it, it, exp- it explains it. But I think the the first way, the first best way to um, to resist what I call the village, and the village is pretty much like Disney and all of the so you know everything from popular media, popular culture, popular psychology, um, uh, fake news, whatever you know, uh, whatever you're getting influences on your belief set. That's the village, and it was I I, I get that from a, a quote. It's a very old quote that it takes a village to raise a child. Well. That's exactly what's happening, although it's a global village right now, and it's influencing the way that we we raise our kids, and it's influencing the, those kids even though we don't realize that that's what's happening to them. So when I discuss the village, I mean sort of this outside influence that wants to create and wants to – we talk about blue pill conditioning. It's the village that is conditioning, blue pill conditioning boys and women as well um, today. So – why I wrote that was because I, I had guys who were who were fathers and they asked me, you know, I, I really want to make sure my kids are, you know, raised in a in a red pill manner. And so I said, OK, well, I think maybe I'll, I can write some essays about that. And that es- those essays ended up turning into the book. And what I wrote was how a guy the ways that a guy can be red pill aware and then pass on that to their children to their particularly their boys but also their daughters there's a, a whole section about raising red pill daughters in there as well um, I have a daughter myself so I had to throw that in there um, <laughs> and so uh, so anyways uh, I, I wrote that because it occurred to me that that would be one of the most effective ways to push back and fight back against the feminine imperative and everything that we have been taught and this this campaign of feminization uh, ever since the sexual revolution. The best way to do that is to make sure that the the upcoming generations are are armored against this that they that they are are taught in a pro masculine positively masculine way. Um, to be red pill aware and to be understanding of the information and the influences that are being fed to them at every level. And I mean that it, the first thing everybody asks me is, is of course, my, the, the teachers in my son's class are all female. Well, yeah, that's right, because in Western societies, 77 percent of all teachers from kindergarten, actually preschool, all the way up to uh, postgraduate education, 77 percent are women. The only the, it's likely that the only male teachers you will have will either be coaches <laughs> or they will be um, they'll be mathematic instructors or they'll be in some in some sort of STEM field. And men tend to be more into like the college uh, you know, university level uh, teaching as opposed to like teaching kids from from their most formative years. And that's why I say we teach our boys as if they're fem- as if they're defective girls. So um how do you how do you defend against that? How do you as a man, how do you as an involved father? And this is this is I, I think this is a good message. And that's why one of the reasons I, I, I called it positive masculinity is because it changes the idea that masculinity is toxic or that masculinity is a bad idea. And so the first the first like about third of that book is dedicated to um to red pill parenting and how you can go about um, preparing your children for a red pill aware life, you know, understanding that they're being programmed by the village. The second part of that is that it is, um, it's an attempt at least to outline what our social order is teaching men in general right now about masculinity. 
That's why I called it positive masculinity. People resisted on me. They said, you shouldn't call it uh, positive masculinity because that mean, that implies that masculinity could be negative. And I'm like, well, the, the what why I, I, I called it positive masculinity is because it's kind of like a poke in the eye to the village because all we hear about is toxic masculinity. In fact, it's this qualification that there are certain aspects of masculinity that are bad for society, that are, that are just you know horrible – you know, it's, it's just part of, of men's nature and we need to like crush out this toxic masculinity and then get to some sort of good masculinity. And they're never really, they never really define what's good masculinity. And so there's this campaign or this conditioning to teach boys to either loathe their, loathe their own gender, to hate their own masculinity, um, see it always as toxic. In fact, that's the shift right now since 2017, 2018, there's been a shift. And the shift is it's no longer toxic masculinity. It's masculinity is toxic. So there's no such thing as, you know, if it's masculine, it's toxic. It's, it's bad. It's a negative. Um, and that's what they want us to believe. Just re- recently in, in January, the American Psychological Association produced a, a, a guideline for uh, working with male clients. And that that makes traditional masculinity a, a psychological disorder, and that's so. It's they're they're essentially making their ideology into uh, their science, and I, honestly, I think that's very very dangerous. So this book is kind of a pushback on at least the last two thirds of the book is a pushback on um, the idea that masculinity has to necessarily be toxic, and it's also an outline of the ways that men are taught that masculinity should be a negative or that they're, they're, there's something wrong with them or they're poisoned by their testosterone or there's something that is inherently wrong with them because they won't accept that the feminine imperative is the correct way to be. It's the correct, I call it female corrective, you know, female correct society is what it is. Anything that, that would benefit a woman is the correct way of thinking about something. And men won't, and because men are mostly beta men, they want to go along with that because they see that as a means to them reproducing and getting with a woman and having a long-term relationship with a woman because they're more supportive or they're, they're more sacrificial than any other guy. And that's what's supposed to make them unique. And really, it's, it makes them part of that herd. And it's the man who is actually looking after his own – has made himself his own mental point of origin. That guy is the one that's unique. The guy that's doing everything for his, for his soulmate – that guy is not unique. He is the one that is the the majority there. Um, but we want we want to promote this idea that you know we should do everything for women and we should always um, we should always view anything that they say as correct and we should jump on board with that and defend against it and police our own gender and say you know well if you think this way that's some there's something wrong with you you're you're a toxically masculine male and so that's that's how you get male feminists. And that's how you get guys who are trying to police other guys. And, and it's, a, it's a very effective form of social control because really all, all of this boils down to is social engineering. How can we sedate men? How can we disempower men? How can we – we've got you know, men when they are uh, full of testosterone, men when they are uh, acting in their own interests, um, they believe that that's a negative thing. And my book says that that's not a, ne- a negative thing. They, the only toxic masculinity there's, – there's no such thing as toxic masculinity. There's only masculinity. And there are aspects of masculinity that agree with the feminine imperative, and there are a- parts that, 
that disagree with it. And so whatever disagrees with it or whatever conflicts with the feminine imperative or what's right for women, whatever conflicts with that is always going to be toxic masculinity. And anything else is like, well, you know, we still need you to open the doors for us. We still need you to pay for a date. We still need you to do all this. So we still want you to act like you're a, our knight in shining armor. But – you know, and and actually, we do love violence, but you know, when you're violent, that's that's toxic, or there's something wrong with that, or when you think about yourself, or when you prioritize your needs above, when you actually try to, um, when you actually try to maintain or establish your own sense of authority, that's toxic. That's something we can't have. We can't have you empowered. So whatever empowers a man is always viewed as toxic masculinity, and whatever works with her, whatever benefits her, whatever. Um, supports her sexual strategies all of that is is a masculinity that they're okay with so what we do is we we try to demonize masculinity but we also try to um, subjectivize it we make we go guys today i think the most common understanding about masculinity today among amongst men is that they don't know anything about it and they I'm, I'm not like those guys so masculinity to me is whatever i want it to be uh, masculinity is me just being as feminine as I possibly can be because what I say goes. It's it's this sort of cult of subjectivity. Like whatever I want to believe about masculinity is masculinity. And it's like, no, there are objective aspects of masculinity that have been part of the male spe human species for, you know, 100,000 years. But now suddenly, just because it, within the last 60 years, you've decided that masculinity is whatever it is that you want to make it. Well, why do you think that? Why do guys think that? <laughs> well, they do because there is this campaign or there's this narrative that is deliberately intended to blur what masculinity should be. Because if men are ignorant of what their masculinity is, they're also ignorant of their own authority. They're also ignorant of their own power. They're also ignorant that they've been disempowered. So if we can keep you confused about that, if we can keep you or we or we can teach you as a boy to to hate being a boy and you want to be a girl to the point where you're probably going to transition and take hormone blocking therapy to make you into a girl. Because what is that really? What is transitioning? At least from, in the respect of going from a male to a female is that it, there's this belief, this social belief that it is more beneficial to be an actual girl. So we, that's why I say we teach boys as if they're defective girls. Well, boys take that to heart and they go, gosh, I wish I could be a girl. Well, you can. Here you go. Maybe there's something wrong with you and maybe you need to actually be a girl. Here, let's give you some hormone blocking therapy and you can pretend to be a girl for a little while and see if that works for you. Or we can go from this idea of social constructionism and believe that gender is uh, is not a concrete binary thing, that it's just whatever you want to make it. It's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. It's masculinity is whatever you want to make it because that's just, you know, because it's all a social construct. And it's like, no, it is not just a social construct. There are biological aspects of it. There are, there are male behavioral aspects of it. There are male evolved hardwired elements of our masculinity in our brains that evolved over 100,000 years. There are definite, concrete, positively masculine aspects of being a human male today, but we're, we're taught to hate that or we're taught to be confused by that. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> and there you go. 
<laughs> you are so amazing. I really love this episode. Um, we could go on and on and on, but we are running out of time. So please tell everybody where can they work with you? Where can they find you on the social webs? Where can they find your work? So okay, uh, let's let's. Oh gosh, I, whenever somebody asks me this, I have to run through my list of things. Uh, okay, first of all, my my blog, my blog is therationalmail.com. Uh, that's where I do most of my writing, most of my thinking. Um, I am usually putting out at least one post a week. So I've kind of scaled that back to maybe one post every two weeks because I've been writing book four right now. Uh, book four is going to be based on religion. Uh, it is uh, and sort of a, a exploration of red pill concepts and how they interact with um with uh, religion and you know major religions mostly, so uh, that's what I'll be working on. I, I should have that published and out by sometime in mid-October. Um, optimistically, I'm hoping that's going to be when it goes. Uh, so you can also find my books. My books are on Amazon.com. Uh, you can uh, just type in the Rational Mail in the search engine, and you'll find all three of them. Or you can just simply go to my author's page, and all three of them they're there, and there are brief descriptions of each one. Uh, if you, if after hearing this and watching me here, um, you want to read the first book, I would say go with the first book first, and then decide whether you want to read two or three. There's no real order. I, I look at the um, the first book as kind of like the rule book, and then the other books are kind of supplements to that rule book. So if you are wondering if, if your position in life is you're trying to deal with a woman who's 30 years old or whatever, and you can't figure it out, go read book two and look at the timeline and look what you can expect from women at that particular time. Um, if you are already a father, maybe you want to and you want to pass on this knowledge that's in the first book to your kids, get book book three first and then read that and then read book two, whatever. I, I want everybody to buy all three of them, of course, but um, but there's no particular order beyond just the first one. Uh, second of all, let's see, what else do I got? Uh, oh, you can find me on uh, Twitter. I am Rolo Tomasi at Rational Mail. Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I'm, I'm very... I'm very approachable, very engaging, as you can tell. Uh, I'm I'm happy to I'm I'm accessible. Let's just say, uh, and so you can find me on Twitter. Um, you can also find me. I'm off, I'm also on Instagram, although I don't really do Instagram all that much. Uh, you can also see me on uh, I I do several podcasts. The first podcast I do, or actually the first I, I do a terrestrial radio show with uh, uh, talk show host Pat Campbell on Friday mornings. Uh, and that is um, eight, no, excuse me, 9:05 Eastern on Friday mornings. Um, if you want the, uh, if you want the live link to listen to me live, you can just go to my uh, my website and there's a, a link to it on on the sidebar there. Um, or you can just follow me on on Twitter and I usually make an announcement when I go on. Uh, I'm also uh, a member of and uh, proprietor of the, uh, the Red Man Group. And the Red Man Group is a group of guys where we get together and we talk about these issues, just like we've been talking today. We usually go for about two hours on uh, Saturday mornings. And it is 11 o'clock Eastern a.m., 11 a.m. Eastern. Uh, and that's on YouTube. Just look up the Red Man Group on YouTube. And then I also have my own, um, my own channel, which is uh, The Rational Mail. And I have a series called Red Pill 101. So if you're listening to all this for the first time and you have questions, uh, usually you'll get them answered on that program. Because what I try to do is I, I have to understand that not everybody has read all of my books and maybe they're just coming into this right now. So I, I kind of reserve that 
uh, that show to help guys understand the basic concepts that I've been talking to you with. Um, so anyways, uh, that's it. That's, that's what I got. <laughs> <laughs> guys, make sure to check everything out that Rolo is putting out there. So, um, what an amazing, amazing episode though. Um, let's start with the first out of the five questions at the end. So, um, Rolo, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? Hmm. Okay. Uh, beyond like the religious things, uh, let's just say the first book that had a really big impact on me was uh, Why Men Are the Way They Are by Dr. Warren Farrell. Uh, he wrote that back in 1986, so it's kind of dated material, but the principles in it, I think, are kind of like the larval stage of the red pill. It's understanding, you know, why women or why girls and why women act in the way that they are. It's, it's an interesting title because um, it really more explores why women are the way that they are and how that makes men why they are the way they are. Uh, that was my first sort of, if, if there was a red pill moment, my, my very first one was reading that book. So that was number one. Uh, number two was actually my own book because I wrote, I, uh, I read it and I wrote, you know, wrote it and read it and lived it. So, um, but I don't know, maybe I shouldn't mention my own book since we've been talking about it. I, I think the next one would be 48 Laws of Power, actually, uh, by Robert Greene, which I think is a very important, um, very important to understanding power dynamics, uh, not just intersexual dynamics. He's got a lot of great stuff. Mastery was another good one by him. Uh, Art of Seduction was pretty good. I'm reading, I'm, I'm about uh, a third of the way through uh, Laws of Human Nature right now, which is his new one. Uh, definitely 48 Laws of Power. And then finally, I would say... I want to say something like the Red Queen. I want to I want to put oh, something technical Matt in there. Ridley, by, yeah. by Matt Ridley, the Red Queen was really good. Um, it's it gives you a, a nuts and bolts understanding of uh, a lot of the red pill things. So I would say that was that was inf very influential. Forty Eight Laws of Power. Yeah, all those were pretty influential. Those would be the top three. I would say there's all, so many of them. I can't I can't <laughs> pick all. Of them. I'm gonna walk out of here right now and I go, damn, I should. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So um, the second question is. What are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? Oh, the three movies that I've enjoyed the most. Gosh, I feel like I should say some like some really profound movie. I just <laughs> I just saw Endgame last night too. I wouldn't put that on the list. <laughs> um, I'm gonna okay. God, you would you would ask me this because I'm kind of like a closet nerd when it comes to movies. Um, I would say the first movie that really scared the living hell out of me was Alien back in 1979. Um, <laughs> although I, I didn't, I never watched it in the theaters when it came out because I was just too young to see it. But like I saw it on HBO, I think in like 1981 or 82, and I saw it by myself in a dark room at about like one o'clock in the morning because you know hbo would only play movies like that you know later our r-rated movies would only come on later on and i my brother and i used to have this um this habit of like waiting up we're waiting until like our parents were asleep and then we would go and flip on like the horror movies <laughs> just to scare each other and scare ourselves so that was that was that taught me the meaning of, of fear and that really messed me I, I love that movie and i think just artistically it was a fantastic movie um so there's that what is the other oh you know what um i'm gonna say 13th warrior was a really good movie i put that on there on the list uh, michael crichton wrote that one i thought that was really good um i that's i'm I'm trying to think of movies that I will watch over and over and over again, and that's that's definitely on the list of movies that I like to to rewatch. Um, gosh, I I don't know what are the other ones I I would I would put on. I, I I'm gonna 
I'm going to throw on here one of the recent ones that I've been getting into. And I just finished watching. This isn't really a movie, but I guess it is in a way. Um, it's an HBO series called The Pacific. And The Pacific is – it follows actual real-life stories, true stories of um, Marines in the Pacific theater during World War II. And I really thought that that I just finished it up about a couple weeks ago, and I really thought that was a very very powerful series. It was uh, Spielberg and Tom Hanks did it because I think they were doing Band of Brothers, and they wanted to do something about the Pacific Theater as well. But it will teach you if you watch that series from with a red pill lens, what I like to call you know once you become red pill aware, you can't see the outside world in a different way anymore, and you can't see you can't listen to music in, in the same way, and you can't watch movies or read books in the same way because you're always like passing it through your red pill filter. Um, when you watch that, you will understand that the dynamics between men and other men back in that generation were were a whole lot different than they are today, and. It was it was interesting to see guys who you know interact with each other who could be just killed on a moment's notice, like without you know you could be talking to him and the guy's dead, and it was it was an interesting it was an interesting story I think uh, or lesson I guess um, in how men actually relate with other men because I think today a lot of guys don't understand how to inter interrelate with men and really that's a uh, a, a, a result, I think, from men or from from boys being taught to hate their own gender and to distrust anything that's masculine and to distrust other guys. Most beta men will have more girlfriends than they have guy friends because they don't know how to relate with with other men. Um, if you watch that movie, you will see just how stark a contrast that time period was with our time period today. Got it. <laughs> so um, the third question is. What is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> besides the, besides my internet to um, – actually, you know what? I, sh I should say the most useful product that I have bought or that I'm renting right now is actually the studio that I'm in right now. Um, it was a very good idea, I think. Um, I, I never really set out to become like a YouTuber or whatever, um, but I, I, at some point I was doing it so often in my, uh, in my home studio because I've got a home art studio that I, I used to do my podcast from. Uh, and I thought, you know what? I really got to move out of here because I got too much crap in here. So <laughs> renting my own place was probably one of the best decisions I've made. Um, Let's see. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think hardware-wise or, or or you mean like as far as products as like, well, like service product or services or things like that? It doesn't matter. Some um, mentioned that the Apple earpods or like U Uber Eats or something. Uber <laughs> Eats. Oh man. Um, let's see. Uh, I think this mic's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> it's a Rode Procaster. I like that. Um, I, I'm, I'm just – because you're asking me this, I'm going to give you a real quick plug for the 21 convention because I think that that is probably the most positive thing that's going on um, in the Manosphere right now. Uh, a lot of people want to want to attack it because it's guys getting together and, and in, in real time and talking about you know issues – a red, what well, I think red pill issues and just uh, issues of masculinity, uh, I think it is becoming a, a much 
it's, it's snowballing into something that's a whole lot bigger than it was ever intended to be. Um, it is a, a series of conventions now. I uh, used to only just be one, but now we're, we're moved to, I'm going to be in Poland actually in, uh, in July. We've got a, a convention in July that's coming up that I'll finally be going overseas to actually talk to guys over there. Um, I've never been to Poland. I've been to Belgium. I've been to uh, the Netherlands. I've been to been to Germany. Been to um, been to South America and other places too. But uh, never been to Poland. So we're going to be there. Uh, that'll be July 18th through the 21st. Um, I you know you want useful things. I think that's going to be really useful to to be able to go there and sort of talk to people live in real time. So. Um, I think that's a, a good thing. We also have another one coming up. The main convention is coming up in October in Orlando, Florida. Um, you can just look at my site and you'll get all the details for that. But um, let's see. Uh, what has been really useful that I've had? Um, oh, you know what? I'm going to give you guys I – I can't really show you because I, do, I can't show you the actual stand here. But I, I have a, a, a friend who makes these really they're, – they're called understands, U-N-D-E-R-S-T-A-N-D-S, understands. And they are for um, – they're for mainly for iMacs, but you can put pretty much any – you can put a monitor on them or whatever. They're like these really nice um, – uh, re repurposed wood stands for computers and monitors and things like that. I'm I'm looking at it right here. I wish I could sh I could sh turn around and show you, but look up under I think it's understands.com. Understands, got it. Yeah, and uh, very. I, I've got one here in this studio, and I've got one at my my home studio as well. And it's um it's re uh, reclaimed wood that they make, and it's just absolutely beautiful. So I I. <laughs> I you know, I think it's important to catch people doing good things, and this guy does really good work, and it's all hand done. It's not like it's not it's not done in China. It's an American company, and it's done like um, everything is hand done. And then when he got when he has a new one, he puts it on and he sells it, kind of thing. It's it's not Etsy. He's got his own thing, but it's absolutely beautiful and it's a fantastic product. So there's your there's your product plug. <laughs> got it, got it. So the fourth question out of the five is um, what have you learned, Rolo, what have you learned in the last two years that excite you the most or the most important realizations you've had? And we had some guests who shared something deeply personal about their family, about their business, about their health, about time management, about like anything. So just speak about like anything you feel comfortable sharing with us today. Okay. So like so I'm sorry. What was the question one more time? Like, like what, what were your most important realizations the last uh, couple of years? In the last couple of years. Okay. Well, I turned 50 last year, um, and m I think one of the most important revelations that I've kind of had is that I had to step back because I know that I'm not going to live forever, and I think that that's a. Uh, um, I think that's everybody kind of goes through that, but you don't really realize that until you're seeing like friends of yours who are actually dying or you see like my mom is in the hospital right now. She's in uh, she's in a physical rehabilitation place. She'll probably be going into an assisted living. She's always told me she wanted to live out the rest of her years up at Lake Tahoe, which is where she was living for a while. But now it's gotten to the point where she can't she can't function on her own. So I saw that my father died in uh, 2000, 2010. And uh, he died from early onset Alzheimer's and dementia. And uh, that scares the hell out of me right now, to be honest with you. And I think a lot of people, we, we think we're invincible and we, we, we think that we have more time than we actually do, I think. And that sort of put things into perspective for me because I don't know how many more functional years I have. 
Um, I don't know that I, I don't know one way or the other, whether I have it as well. I'm hoping I don't, I don't know who my, I don't know who my grandfather was on my mom's side of the family. So it could be a genetic thing. It could be something I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't know, but I'm operating when I hit 50, I'm like, okay, I need to reassess what it is that I want to finish doing before I'm no longer as useful as I was before. And I'm, I'm still in good shape. I'm still with it. I'm still, you know, whatever I'm just doing. I think actually, honestly, I think I'm finally hitting my stride. I was, I was, when I wrote the, the rational mail, the first book uh, that was published in 2013. And so I was in my forties when I did that. And I, I think there's this sort of mythology that you have to like your, your most productive functional years are going to be your twenties or your thirties. And it's like, no man, it just depends on what you're going to do. Um, so what I asked myself is what do I want to do? And I made the decision to step back from my, I, my, my real job is I, I work in the liquor industry. I am a, a promoter and I have, uh, ownership interests in two brands of, of liquor. And I've always worked in, at least for the last 12 years, I've worked in, um, uh, wine and spirits and, and things like that and promotion. And I was the principal creative for a lot of different brands. Um, but I, I'm like, do I want to be remembered for, you know, selling liquor or do I want to be remembered for the rational mail? Do I want, do I want my grandchildren to remember, um, you know, great grandpa Rolo as, you know, this way, or, or am I just going to be the guy who made a few really nice bottles and that was it. And so I decided to step back, um, from, from my, my, my liquor brands. I mean, still, I still have the ownership. I still make royalties off of that, but I'm not doing it as actively as I used to. And I, I have to really sort of balance that because I, I've been doing part of the, part of the benefit of doing what I do was it put me in the field. It, it allowed me to sort of be uh, an observer of human behavior and um, see guys and, you know, women and men interact with each other. And it taught me a lot. So it put me out in the field. Now, was I picking up girls or anything? No, I wasn't, but I was, I was dealing with women, beautiful women, because I had to have women as sort of booth can, we call them poor girls um, for, uh, for promotional stuff. Um, so it, it kept me, it gave me a really broad sense of, of, uh, how culture changed and how men and women have changed over the years, uh, and how they interrelate. Um, but I didn't, I, I didn't want to just do that. So I wanted, I wanted to write more books. I wanted to explore being an author a little bit more because at the end of all of this, or when, when I finally get to the point where I can't do anything anymore, I want to be able to say I left a dent in the universe and I want to say I, I helped helped guys. I saved men's lives, and I've already have done that. And uh, I don't feel bad about saying that. I I have guys hit me up all the time saying you saved my, you literally took the gun out of my mouth, kind of thing. And that's what I set out to do. Really, was because my my brother-in-law ended up killing himself, and I've also had other friends kill themselves for the same same reason. Um, and I've literally had guys say I had set a date to commit suicide. And then I came across your book, I read it, and I understood what I was involved in and what was happening to me, and I, I canceled that date. And my kids have a father because of your book. So that, to me, is more important than selling liquor. So, uh, And I want to, uh, I want to leave a, a sort of a legacy, I guess, a red pill legacy. And I think I've done that already with the first book, but I, I want to see what else is possible. And I want to to explore this as best I can before I'm less functional, I guess. Um, I think 
taking me seriously at 50 years old is fine. But I think when I get to be in my 60s or something, I'm going to have to be talking to a different audience by then. So I'm, and I'm aware of that. And I'm hoping that people will. I, I've always said that the red pill is open source. Um, it's not that nobody owns the red pill. Nobody's the father. People call me the godfather of the red pill. Okay. I, no, I'm not the father. Right? It's it, because I have taken everybody's aggregate experience and put it together as a book and put it together as this understanding. And, and so we're all the father of the red pill. We're all the, it, it's a, it's a collective experience and it's a collective effort on the part of men, but I'm glad to have been an important part of that. And I'm, I'm hoping that in the next 10 years, next, you know, 12, 15 years that I can, I, I can leave something that's going to help guys and ch- literally change society and change the world, um, later on in future generations. Rolo, the um, what would you tell your 20 year old self? Oh God, I always get this. Everybody asks me this one. <laughs> Um, well, let me before I answer that, let me say that the 20-year-old Rolo Tomasi would have never listened to the 50-year-old. <laughs> it would have been like, get the hell out of here. Um, nah, and, and, and I understand. My, my daughter's 21 right now, so I go, yeah, I was right there. Um, I would say that I think the most important message, I, if, I could, if I could impress upon my older my, – or excuse me, my younger self um, – I would impress upon him the need to make himself the first thing in his life, to make himself his mental point of origin. Because it took me a long time to understand that I had been kind of programmed or conditioned not to do that, to to believe in all, all you know, people say, well, Rolo, he's, you know, he did everything right, man. You know, he can't, he, I can speak to so many different topics right now, whether it's marriage or have raising a daughter or it's, uh, you know, picking up girls in a club, um, you know, doing whatever. I can speak to a lot of different aspects of the phases of maturity that men go through. The one most important thing that was my hindrance, my stumbling block through my certainly through my 20s was that I was always even though I was very much an alpha in you know playing in the Hollywood heavy metal scene back in the day um, even though I was people say I've got a notch count of about a little bit over 40 um, most of those came during my early 20s um, even though I was I ha- had learned how to get laid and I had learned how to um, how to interact with women I still subscribe to all those blue pill things that I just talked we've just been talking about for the last hour um, that's how I know about those things that's how the that's why it was so uh, interesting to me to hear other guys stories that were almost identical to my own and I wasn't always you know lesser alpha Rolo Tomasi I've been the blue pill guy I've been the the beta guy I've been the really alpha guy who didn't give a you know who is very self-absorbed I've been that guy um, I've been uh, the guy who's in a, a BPD relationship with a, a girlfriend who pretty much deprived me of four years of my li- you know things that are my the prime of my life but I can't say deprived because I was the one who was responsible for that. I was the one who I, I could have walked away from that at any time, but my mindset was not where it needed to be. I never made myself my mental point of origin. I always made girls my mental point of origin, and I always made them the, the priority. Like, and I don't mean that in oh I got to get laid all the time. I meant it in like I if I was with a girl, I was like a hundred percent. I was all in. 
right? I, I believed in one-itis. I believed in that soulmate thing. I believed in uh, a scarcity mentality. Like, oh, it's funny because like prior to when I was in my 20s, I, I played in a, a lot of bands in, in the L.A. rock scene. Um, it was the late 80s, the early 90s. And um, I had gone from this guy who could easily go out and get laid on a Friday night after a gig or whatever. I, I could have my choice of the women in the club that I wanted to. And then I went from that to to being completely paralyzed by one-itis and completely paralyzed by the soulmate myth because I'd never really killed that beta. I'd never really unplugged. I was still plugged in. I could get laid, but I was still plugged in and my head wasn't in the right space. Uh, and I had to learn from that. And so maybe actually that would have been the worst thing I could have told myself because I had to go through all those experiences to get to w the point where I could write a book about it. Uh, I had to go through all of the bad, you know, experience teaches harsh, but it teaches best. I'm sure you've probably heard that before. Um, I'm a firm believer in that. I'm also a firm believer in enlightened self-interest on that. I cannot help others until I can help myself or I cannot help others as well as when I can help myself first. So I'm a better husband. I'm a better man. I'm a better father. I'm a better lover. I'm a better employee. I'm a better whatever. When I think about me first and then I help other people, that doesn't mean don't help other people. That doesn't mean like you be this selfish prick all the time. It means that you think about how what you're doing is going to affect you first and then everybody else comes second after that. And then, you know, if you want to help people, then you help people and you do so. I'm not saying that that's not important. It is. Is that before you get to that help, you have to already already help yourself. I would have told myself that back then, and that might have been that might have changed things a little bit differently for me. But again, we're all the sum of our past experiences. So you wouldn't be having this conversation for me if I did that. But I wouldn't have listened anyway. So <laughs> so who cares? <laughs> but that's what, I, when people ask me that what they're saying is what is your message to the younger generation? And that's my message to the younger generation, which is make yourself your own mental point of origin. Well, thank you for this amazing, 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 amazing episode and sharing your time here. And um, I'm sure uh, this all, everyone who is currently listening to this episode will love this. And um, yeah, thank you very, very much for being sure. on the Thanks. podcast. Thanks. It was my pleasure. My pleasure. It's nice <laughs> meeting you. Talk soon.